0: Well, good evening again. Good night. Thank you. We're starting a new series tonight, and so if you would, open your Bibles up to First John, a letter of 1 John. Am I a little loud? Am I loud? I saw, like, scary looks. on it. Okay. I'm all right? Okay, good. Sometimes I can't tell if that's just conversational or if it's me with the mic. So um, we're going to be in First John chapter 4 tonight. We're starting this new series called Why Jesus. So over the next seven to eight weeks, we're going to be looking at common objections to the Christian faith. Now, what we normally do here at Grace Bible Church is we normally preach through books of the Bible. Occasionally we'll do topics as uh, we feel like God leads us to do that as the need arises in the church. We've, we've felt like there's a need as, as the elders have prayed and as we've been kind of looking out where we are as a church over the last uh, year or so. felt like there was a need to really uh, kind of emphasize and encourage our body in what we would call evangelism. Uh, evangelism comes from the word uh, in the Greek, which is uh, the good news. We we translate that sometimes as gospel, right? So there's this message about Jesus, this good news. And so we want to grow in our ability to share that and our excitement about sharing that with other people. And so as a part of that process, we're going to start this series called Why Jesus. What we're going to do is I've taken the common objections to the Christian faith out of Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And so his first seven chapters are addressing these common objections, and what we're going to try to do is address those objections uh, in an expository way. Expository preaching is basically exposing the Bible for people, right? Just helping you to understand what the Bible has to say about certain things. So tonight we'll be in 1 John, next week we'll be in another chapter in another book of the Bible, but we're going to try to address these, these common objections, Um, As we do that, so a lot of the outline is going to come from Tim Keller and his book, The Reason for God, Um, but I've also pulled stuff from from other sources as well. And so what we're doing as a part of the series is we're going to be putting resources for you out in the hallway. There's a lot of books out there. Um, We want to encourage you to to buy books for yourself, to be reading on your own, to be praying that God would give you opportunities to, to share the faith. Also be praying that God would lead you to kind of Uh, bolster yourself in the areas where you're unsure or where you want to study more. Um, Some of you have heard my own story. I I came to faith as a 17-year-old and really was just overwhelmed with the reality of this Jesus who would die for me, right? That was overwhelming for me. I responded in faith, told him I would give myself to him, even though I thought at that time it was going to mean bad things for me, right? I thought he was going to You know, it wasn't going to go so well in my life, but I was so convinced that he was Lord, I started following him. But I still had all kinds of intellectual questions. I still had all kinds of uh, things that I couldn't figure out, things that didn't seem coherent, things that didn't make sense to me, um, a lot of intellectual objections to the Christian faith. And so I, I began studying those things. So for two, three, four years of my life, I really dug into what's often called apologetics, comes from the word, uh, the old Greek word apologia, which just means defense. So it's like giving a, a reason for the faith. Peter talks about always be prepared to give, to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And so there's this whole topic in Christian theology that we often call apologetics. So we want to encourage you in that. We want to have you feel this sense of, yeah, my faith makes sense. And I want to share this with other people. So that's our prayer Um, Some of the resources that we have out there, like I said, uh, we've got Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, which actually already uh, is gone because a bunch of people grabbed it this morning, so we'll buy more of these. Um, And I'm just going to give you a list of the books that we have on the table. For a suggested donation, we're a church, so we don't sell things, right? So if you want to take it, take it. But if you can afford to donate some money to help us pay for the books, that would be great. We've got The Reason for God that's written by Tim Keller, who's a New York City pastor. And so a lot of great thinking and great arguments there, but also just recognize he's writing more for the New York City mindset. And some people have said that our culture is a little different than New York City, you know, so there's some differences. Some of you may be from there, so you'll dig it. Others might think this doesn't make as much sense to me. There's another book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and this is a really good book. He's a, he was a lawyer and an investigative journalist that covered legal cases. And so he applies uh, legal logic and investigative journalism to evidences for the Christian faith. So it's a very quick-moving book. It's very logical. It's pretty easy to follow. That's one I would recommend as well. He kind of covers the basics of uh, the resurrection, the reliability of the scriptures, and the person of Jesus. So that's a really good one as well. There's also Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This is a classic C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a lot of fiction as well as nonfiction. He was a literature professor at Oxford in uh, Britain, and he wrote this book in the 40s. I think it was the late 40s, maybe early 50s. And so because he speaks another language, right, British, and because he wrote 60 years ago, it's, there's a little bit of a language barrier there, but his style is very common sense. So uh, if, if you've read a lot of old books, I don't think it would be too hard for you. If you read mostly just new books, it might be a little hard for you, but he's very good common sense reasons for the Christian faith. There's also a book called The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer. Schaefer had a big impact on me. Uh, he was a part of the seminary that I went to. He, he died before I was there, but he had a, basically discipled most of the professors that I had in seminary. Um, one of my professors, Jerem Bars, had a big impact on my understanding of, of apologetics. So this book was really foundational for me, and it helped me because I, I grew up with a, a mom that was an art teacher, so kind of learning a lot about the art world, and, and uh, how philosophy intersects with art. And his book really gets into a lot of that. So if you're interested in, in history, art, philosophy, it would be one I would really recommend. It kind of pulls all that together with worldview and how that intersects with our faith. And then one that's very good, and it's very, very simple, is How to Stay Christian in College by Jay Budziszewski. So even if you're not in college, it's a very good book on just the basics of the Christian faith and kind of the things that are thrown at us from our culture that push back against the Christian faith. So that's another one I would recommend. Jay Budashevsky. Um, he writes from a Catholic background, so theologically we wouldn't line up with him on everything, um, but he's kind of sticking to the main central doctrines of the Christian historic faith, and so they're mostly agreement with what he writes in that book. And then there's another great book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, This just came out and it was written by a woman that it was a lesbian, atheistic English professor at a big university. And so she just converted to Christianity about 10 years ago and has now written kind of her her memoirs of of how that happened. And a lot of good insight there because especially if if you grew up in the South or if you grew up in Christian circles, sometimes you just don't realize how weird we appear to people that come from a non-Christian. Christian background, so it's really helpful if, if you want to learn more about that from a cultural standpoint. And then finally, there's a book called Notes from the Tilta World by Indy Wilson. Uh, if you are probably if you're you know younger than thirty, this would be a good one for you. He writes in a very kind of scattered uh, postmodern style that's a little hard to follow, but again, very good stuff uh, on philosophy and on the Christian faith. And then finally, the last one is is a little booklet called Just the Story. Uh, and that one is basically a little booklet that just explains the gospel biblically in simple terms, puts it in context of the larger story of all of Scripture. So these are resources we're trying to put into your hands to equip you. I don't want you to go and get all of them, right? But we're, we're just praying that you, know, you would find your way to one of them that would help you to feel more equipped to share your faith with others. And I know for some of you, you, you may be seekers, right? You may just be seeking to understand the faith more. And so again, we think those books would be helpful ones uh, to help you in that journey. So that's what we're praying for, that, that we'd feel more comfortable with our faith, understanding it, what it means. One of the main objections to the Christian faith, this first one that we want to talk about, my clicker is just not working. Let me see. That. There we go. Did you do that or did I do that? You did that, okay. <laughs> it's the problem of narrow-mindedness. I don't know if you can read the fine print across the Jesus, or across the bottom there. So why Jesus? And then the fine print says, uh, the problem of narrow-mindedness. So in our culture, one of the major objections to the Christian faith is the idea that it's narrow-minded. We live in what is called a pluralistic society, and plural just means many, right? So we live in pluralism, which means there's many different beliefs and we should just be okay with all of them. And that's kind of the general cultural uh, cultural standard that, that our culture would teach. That's what you would be taught in college. That's what a lot of people that are in positions of power in our culture would say. Um, and so we want to push back on that a little bit and answer that objection. And the thesis here, um, in, in the book, in Tim Keller's book, he kind of addresses this Uh, From a philosophical standpoint. But then in another sermon, I actually heard him use this text, 1 John chapter 4, and I thought it was really impressive that he would use this text. Because this text sounds really narrow minded, right? You would think he'd go pick some Bible text that sounds real free and open minded, right, to push back against this objection. But he goes to a text, 1 John chapter 4, that actually sounds really narrow minded. But by the end of the text, it it shows kind of this paradox, this reversal of narrow mindedness. And so the thesis is this that the narrow uh, doctrine, the narrow truth that we believe as historic Christians actually leads to an openness and a generosity in the way that we love people. Does that make sense? So, so there's this narrow truth that we hold to. We actually believe it's true, and we actually believe other things are not true. And, and that bizarre, non-pluralistic thinking, right, that goes against our culture, that narrowness actually leads to an openness where we're generous, where we love people, where we love our enemies, where we're willing to serve other people the way that Jesus served us. And so that's really the basic thesis. We'll read through the text together. It's 1 John chapter 4, and it's page 1023. If you want to grab one of the Bibles, under the chairs. if If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, you could follow along. On one of those Bibles, page 1023, it's a letter of 1 John. There's a big Gospel of John, kind of at the beginning of the New Testament, and then there's these three shorter letters called 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John at the end. So 1 John chapter 4 starts off in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world... So just starting there in verse 1, he he pushes back against the pluralism of the age. And remember that we live in a pluralistic culture now. The Roman Empire in the first century was pluralistic as well. In the Roman Empire, they said, you can believe anything you want to as long as you don't push back against the power of the state. But you can pretty much believe any any religion you want to. It doesn't really matter to us. There was a sense of pluralism there similar to what there is today. But the gospel pushes back against that and says, don't don't believe everything. It's not all true. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love... Does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is is perfected in us. Let me pray for us, and we'll try to peel this back a little bit more. God, we thank you for your word to us, your direction to us, and God, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us guidance. Uh, We recognize instinctively that our minds push back against certain ideas, and our minds are more receptive to others. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that we would understand and have discernment to believe what is true, and we We pray that that would help us to love others well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we think about what different cultures believe, we we have to recognize that there are uh, presuppositions, right? There are standard uh, assumptions that we start with because of our culture. Um, So wherever you grew up, there were certain values in your culture, certain ways you were taught to interact with each other, certain ways you were taught to interact with the world of ideas, with religion. And we all come into any situation with with assumptions, with with presuppositions. And it's important to test those and to think about those. And one of the best ways to, to better discern this and understand the difference between what the Bible says and then just the culture that we were raised in is to interact with other cultures. It's one of the great benefits of, of living in a city like Colleen, where there are a lot of different cultures moving in and out. That's one of the blessings of our city, frankly. It's also one of the blessings of, of going to other countries where you get to interact and, and learn and understand other cultures. Um, so we, we've enjoyed this. Like when we go to Guatemala, um, there's things about that culture that just make no sense to me, right? And there's other things about that culture that I just say, these are my people, right? I love these people. The, the way they understand time much more relaxed, right? Here, here in America, we're kind of uptight about time. Most Americans like things to start on time and end on time. My brain doesn't really work that way. I mean, I wear a watch, but I don't really pay attention to it very well. And so when I'm in Guatemala and I have a much more relaxed attitude about time, I feel like, wow, I'm at home, right? And you can see these different things about different cultures. Uh, when we traveled to Berlin, we have a a guy here at the church named Frank Leeson that we partner with, who does Young Life in Berlin. So we've gone a couple of times to help him do Young Life camps in Berlin. So one time we were there a couple of years ago. We were on uh, one of the subway trains, the U-Bahn, and we were on this train. And there was a group of us. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, if you've been in a group in another country, but Americans are sometimes uh, louder and more gregarious than than other people in other countries. Um, there's probably other cultures that are more loud than us, but most of the cultures I've been to, we're kind of the loud ones. And also, we were it was all Texans as well, so I think that makes us even more louder and obnoxious than just average Americans. So there's this group of us Texans on the train together, and we're kind of loud, we're kind of obnoxious, and this bug comes in. And it is a freakish dinosaur-type bug. It's big, and it's glistening in the sun, and it's got these big, loud wings, and it's making a weird buzzing noise. And I don't know if it was some kind of locust or moth or what it was. It was just—it was weird. It was big. It was bright. It was colorful. It was not the kind of bug we were used to seeing. And everybody was kind of terrified, right? So the the Americans, the Texans, were being really loud about it, jumping around and making noise and freaking out. Uh, And even the Berliners, even the Berlin, they were more calm, right? But they were kind of, you know, they didn't want it to land on their face and eat them or anything, too. So they were kind of dodging it a little bit. So we, as Americans, of course, see ourselves as very heroic. We're going to rescue the people from the giant killer bug. So all of us start pulling our shoes off and rolling up newspapers and, and we start going after this bug, right? And we're just whacking at it and finally one of us kills it, just bam, 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 just obliterates the bug. And we're feeling, we're feeling pretty proud of ourselves, right? Like, yeah, look at what we did. And the Berliners on the train were just kind of rolling their eyes and kind of scooting away from us. They were disgusted by our behavior. Our host, Frank, who who lives there in Germany, he was just kind of at a distance watching the whole thing, smiling, <laughs> uh, and kind of used it as an education tool later on to educate us culturally that, you know what, they have a much more high respect for uh, living things, I guess, than we do, and they just kind of saw us as these warmongering, aggressive <laughs> Americans. <laughs> He said, you know, a, a, a Berliner would have just shooed it out of the window or something, but we were all trying to kill it and going crazy. And, and so that was just, just one of these great lessons where we learned, okay, they, they see us differently than we see ourselves, right? And, and it, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with anyone when you're wanting to communicate with them to cross those cultural barriers. I, I use that as a silly example, but there's countless examples of how you can misunderstand each other because of just your baseline assumptions of what's good and what's bad. And a lot of times those are those are gray areas. Christianity is this unique and glorious religion in that Laman Sane, this African scholar, says that the, the root language of Christianity is translation. And it's this unique religion that is made to be translated into other cultures. And that's one of the glories of Christianity. And so Christianity, because of its translatability, because of its ability to be translated into other cultures, uh, allows us the ability to both affirm things in other cultures that we wouldn't normally embrace, uh, but also to, to judge things in cultures, because we believe that ultimately our, our faith is ultimate, right? That Jesus is Lord. So there's things that he will come into and embrace in cultures, and Christianity can uniquely look different in other cultures, but there's also this core... This narrow core of truth about Jesus that's got to be universal in every culture that it goes to. And so, no matter who we're talking to, no matter what person you're having a conversation with, we want to be mindful that they have different views than we do. They have different starting points. Uh, I shared about this guy named Francis Schaefer that wrote the book, The God Who Is There. One of his quotes that I've heard many times is, if you have one hour to share your faith with someone that you should spend 55 minutes listening and asking questions. Because it's really simple to share the faith, but you want to understand that person first. You want to understand them. The faith is universal. The message doesn't change, but have you taken the time to understand their starting point, their assumptions, where they agree with it, where they don't agree with it? Have have you taken the time to listen first? And then the, the faith is very simple. The story of Jesus is very simple, but... You want to make sure you understand people. You're listening to them first. So again, the the idea here with this is that there is a narrowness of truth. Jesus Christ come in the flesh, what it says here in the text, that leads to a great openness in how we interact with people. What we would call generosity, grace, that we love people. We actually love our enemies. We actually are kind to people even when they're not kind to us. And so we would both affirm the narrowness of Christianity. We believe in truth but we'd also deny it in the sense that we would say that it's the one religion above all else that undermines the kind of narrow-mindedness that leads to prejudice and hate and war and destruction and all these things. It's the one kind of narrowness that actually leads to love. That's what we believe about the faith. So so let's look at this in an expository way from 1 John 4. What's the first thing that we notice in 1 John 4? The first thing that we see... Maybe if I do this. All right, I'm going to try a different setting here. Ah, yeah, now it works. I had the wrong... Okay. First, we see the danger of not being narrow, right? So look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 and 1 John 4 says this. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. All right, now, we're modern scientific people, so we tend to not even believe in spirits a lot of times in, in America. So let's just grant... That spirit can have a, a broad sense, right? It can mean something very specific like demonic spirit, right? But it could also mean just the, an idea. And what John is saying is, is test them. There are, there are different truths being told and not all of them are true. So there's a danger of not being narrow. You have to be narrow at some practical level to discern between good and bad. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There are things that if you do them, they will kill you. And there are things that if you do them, it will go well with you. And then there's a lot of gray things, right, that doesn't seem to matter too much. What color socks I pick in the morning. It's not really a big deal, right? So there's, there's different kinds of decisions and we have to have discernment to, to judge these things. John says, don't listen to every spirit. Don't listen to every prophet. Some of them are wrong. Some of them are going to get you into trouble. And so there's a real danger in not being narrow. There's a danger of listening to the wrong voice. Tim Keller shared that he was on a panel where they were discussing different religions. And this idea, uh, this spirit of pluralism came through in one of the questions that he was asked. He and a, a rabbi and uh, maybe a Muslim iman and you know some, some people from different faiths were sharing about the distinctives of their faith. And they were saying, yeah, I believe this, and I don't believe that, and I believe this is wrong because of this, and, and they were kind of making these judgments, right? Saying, I believe this because of this, and I believe that's wrong because of this. And and one young person was, was bothered by that because of the spirit of pluralism. So pluralism, this idea that, that everything is kind of true, and why can't we just all get along, and just everything's kind of true so we can be unified globally, he said, well, well, if you're saying that those other people are wrong, isn't, isn't, isn't that what's causing all the war and prejudice and hate in, in our society? The problem with that is that people don't always think that through to the logical conclusion, right? So if, if you're saying that we should always be lovingly affirming what everybody believes and keep it private and not ever make judgments about something being right or wrong, we're not testing the Spirit, and that leaves us open to following people and ideas that are just wrong, that, that will hurt us. Leslie Newbigin is a is an author that I've just been reading this week. He had a big impact on Tim Keller and his work, but also on a lot of Christians in the last twenty years. Leslie Newbigin wrote a lot of books. He was a, a missionary in India for forty years, and then came back to the UK uh, after forty years of being away, and, and recognized how the church wasn't really they weren't thinking like missionaries anymore. They weren't thinking about how to communicate the gospel into their context any longer. So he's written a lot of great work on just helping us to understand that. Like, what does our culture believe, and how do we communicate the gospel to them? And Nubigan has this, this concept that when we affirm everything, uh, our society begins to crumble. We, we lose the ability to judge right and wrong, and we become vulnerable to attack. We become vulnerable to, to cultural decay. Uh, because we can no longer recognize danger, if everything's good and we're affirming everything and it doesn't really matter, and there's uh, it's just you know it's a private matter and we can all pick our own thing and every religion is the same, then we've begun to lo- lose discernment culturally. I-, I have an example of this um, on the slide here. I have a picture of Jim Jones. Have any of y'all ever heard of the Jim Jones cult? In 1978, one of the one of the largest mass suicides of all time took place in Guyana. He He took this group of people to this other country. They established a compound. They had their own church. He was this uh, well-spoken, appealing, dynamic personality that people listened to, that they followed. He seemed good, but people weren't testing that spirit. They weren't testing that prophet. I mean, we we would say now, in retrospect, no, he's evil. That's bad. Mass suicide, killing all these people, that's dead bodies all over the ground there. That's an aerial shot. Of their compound. They drank the poison Kool-Aid. You've ever heard the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? This is what they're talking about. They drank poisonous Kool-Aid. So if everything's okay and religion doesn't really matter and nothing's really true or false and we're fuzzy about those kinds of distinctions, we open ourselves up to the inability to judge right and wrong. When very real evil is present We've lost the ability as a culture to say, that's evil. That's dangerous. And so we have to be cautious. There's a danger in not being narrow. We need to be narrow, we need to be discerning. What does this look like in our culture? Okay, I thought I had it working, but I guess I don't. don't What does this look like in in our culture? What are ways that we we don't properly test the spirits? I have an example, I think, that happens in uh, religious culture. So I think this can happen in religious culture and non-religious culture. So religious culture, kind of the Bible belt we find ourselves in here. In religious culture, this can look like a lot of different things. One of the ways that this shows up is uh, claiming a Bible verse, um, right? So you're kind of wanting something or you're thinking about something and you just flip through your Bible and boom, there's a verse, right? Now, I'm not saying that God can't communicate with us that way, okay? So I just want to make that caveat. But I think it's a dangerous habit that we have of just grabbing something and not testing it biblically, right? So I could flip over here. If I flip one page, I'm in 2 Peter 3. I could read in 2 Peter 3, take care that you are not carried away. I could take that as a sign from God. And if I'm ever injured and a paramedic comes, I could say, no, no, the verse said, take care to not be carried away, so I'm not going to let myself be carried away on a gurney and taken to the hospital, right? Which is a ridiculous example because you can all go, well, that's well, that's just dumb, Dave, because you're taking it way out of context. But we do that in lesser ways, right? We open up the Bible. We find a verse. and We kind of like the way that verse feels. And we're like, hey, this is my verse. And this is what it means for me. Have you ever used that? You ever heard that term before? It means this for me. What does that even mean for me? That was the the Bible was written with a purpose. It has a purpose to display Jesus. We need, we need to interpret the Bible in its own context. Why was it written? What is it trying to say? We need to be careful that we don't just grab a verse and say, this is what it means for me, and I'm going to claim this idea. Or you also hear this with, even without verses of just claiming some, something that you want, right? I'm claiming this. I'm believing this. Well, again, that language isn't always wrong, but it's a dangerous habit culturally in the Bible Belt, that we would just claim things and we would wrap it in spiritual clothing. And so then, it's, well, it's got to be right. It can't be questioned because it's spiritual. And I would just say, be careful. John says, test every spirit. Don't just believe something because it's said in spiritual language. Well, they said it in Bible study and they have a Jesus sticker on the back of their van, so it must be true, right? Well, no, not necessarily. Test it. A great example of this is 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So, a big section. We're not going to read it. Um, But in in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, chapter 12 and chapter 14 are about these unusual displays of Christian truth where people speak in other languages. It's often called speaking in tongues. And then also prophecy, right? And so 12 and 14 are about prophecy and tongues. And he's talking about how those should be governed in, in the church, and he says, basically, it should be tested scripturally, right? The leaders, the scripture should, should test that. It shouldn't just be turned loose and everybody go, well, this is spiritual, so it's okay and I can do it anywhere, anytime. No, Paul says we should govern it. What's really interesting is sandwiched in between chapter 12 and chapter 14 is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've probably heard it. It's the love chapter. Y'all ever heard that, right? Love is this, love is patient, love is kind. It's this whole chapter about how awesome love is. Well, in in context, Paul's point is that love should ultimately govern the use of these voices. We shouldn't just speak up and say, well, I just want to say this, and so I get to say it. It's tested by love, right? So it's governed by the leaders of the church. It's governed uh, by the uh, understandability of the people there, it's governed by love, it's governed by the Scriptures. So you see, again, this concept that then comes up later in First John, test every spirit. Don't just believe everything, but, but test it. Test it. Now, and we don't want to become skeptics that don't believe anything anybody says, but we want to test it scripturally. Does, does it agree with what the Scripture already says? Does it agree with what we already see in the truth? So I believe that's one of the ways, even in our religious context, we don't test the spirits. We're not narrow. We just believe whatever is wrapped in spiritual clothing. And then the same thing can happen in a non-religious context, right? Anything that just agrees with our assumptions, our presuppositions, the way we've been raised in a pluralistic society, what we've been taught about science, right? If a scientist says it, well, it's it's gotta be true, right? Because scientists are the prophets of our of our culture. So we you know we have these people that were more willing to to believe these ideas that we're more willing to believe. And John would say, be careful, test them. John doesn't say they're all wrong. He just says, test them. Because there's a lot of wrong ones out there. There's a lot of wrong ideas out there. So there's a real danger in not being narrow at all. The next thing I want us to look at is the nature of Christian narrowness. So what's the nature of Christian narrowness? So this is a part that's really hard in the text. Again, as growing up in a pluralist culture, this this stuff sounds wrong to us when we read this. Um, says in 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So we've got this bullseye, the the nature of Christian narrowness. I I grabbed a photo here of a dartboard, a bullseye there on a dartboard, just so you could see this conceptually. Christianity would say there's narrow boundaries to what we believe is true. So we've got a lot of cultural sway, right? You can be a Christian that sees time uh, in a very type A American sense, or you can be a Christian that sees time in a, in a looser Latin American sense, right? There, there's these cultural things that are okay. You can be this kind of Christian and that kind of Christian. But there are some things that aren't up for grabs. There is a bullseye of truth. We'd say, you, you have to believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You have to believe that. That's non-negotiable. And he gives other tests as well. He says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So not talking about this, this end time stuff, like we've all seen you know, books about this great Antichrist figure at the end of the world. But he's talking about the spirit, kind of this, this con- concept of being against Christ here. Saying this is that spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There's already Antichrists in the world. There's already all these forces pushing back against Christ in the world. He says in verse 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is meant to encourage us, right? We we don't have to be afraid. There's constantly voices that are speaking against what we believe, that are saying things other than what we would see as the bullseye of truth. But we don't have to be afraid because he says, uh, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Verse 5 says, They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. This is common sense in, in this world. But... Look at verse 6. This is where it gets... This just is mind-blowing, right? If you've grown up in an open-minded, pluralistic culture, verse 6 sounds, sounds like he's going way over the top. John says in verse 6, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit... Oh, excuse I skipped a clause there. Let me see this again. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John tightens up the bullseye even more, and he says, we're the official messengers here. We're the apostles. Jesus picked us and sent us out, and if you don't listen to us, you're listening to the wrong voices. The people that listen to us are from God also. People that don't listen to us are not from God. So again, this, is, this makes us squeamish, this makes us uncomfortable if we grew up you know, in the public school system here, if you went to university here, just the pluralism of our day teaches us that you can't... You can't speak that clearly. You can't speak that decisively about truth. No one's allowed to speak that way. And again, realize, recognize, that in itself is a decisive truth claim. That in itself is a decisive truth claim to say you can never speak about truth that decisively. Well, you're being decisive. And so there's this kind of logical paradox there where we're taught again and again you can't You can't decide what's true and what's right and wrong, but the guy telling you that has just decided that that's right and wrong to think that way. So be careful. Test every spirit. Recognize that historically Christianity says the apostles wrote this book and they set the bullseye for what the message is. The message is centered around Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. And so recognize that bullseye. And don't be afraid of that narrowness. Again, recognize that if you, if you have no discernment at all, if there's no narrowness in your life at all, you're making no decisions. You're making no choices. You're opening yourself up to uh, attack. You're opening yourself up to invasion. Recognize that you actually make choices every day, that you're deciding all the time what's right and wrong, but there's a spirit of the age that masks that and makes it seem like, we shouldn't do that makes it seem like we don't do that but even those people that say they're not are doing it we're all doing it all decisions have some end and that's and that's what makes friedrich nietzsche so appealing right any of you study philosophy nietzsche one of the most anti-god philosophers that is he he follows that logic to its conclusion if you follow it all the way to the end nietzsche says there is no god there's no right and wrong we just all do whatever we want which of course was highly influential to Adolf Hitler. So the last thing that I want us to look at is is the paradoxical fruit of Christian narrowness. So there is a real narrowness to Christianity. We, we don't deny it. There's a narrowness to what we believe as historic Christians, but it is the one belief that actually compels us uh, to be servants. It actually compels us to love our enemies. It actually compels us uh, to be gracious and to be generous and to be open-minded in a way that that no other belief system would allow. And so look at this in verse 7. This is really the final test, right? So he's he's giving these these tests or these bullseyes of truth, right? Jesus Christ come in the flesh. He's not a disembodied spirit, but he actually came in the flesh. Apostolic doctrine. John's saying, listen to us. We're the ones that are official representatives, the ones that wrote this book. And then now we've got the test of love. Just going back again to the Jesus Christ Come in the flesh part, I've skipped over this part in my notes, we'll go back to that for a second. Um, There is this movement in our culture, uh, starting with Kant and Descartes, where we started really emphasizing science, right? Whatever we can taste and touch and measure. And so I made reference to this a little bit earlier, that scientists tend to be in some ways the prophets of our age. They're the ones we trust about truth. So we can be sure of scientific truth, but we can't be sure about religious truth is, is the general posture of our age. And a lot of that came from the philosophical work of Kant and Descartes, who really focused uh, in, on empir- empirical knowledge, right, what you can measure scientifically. And, and so it's interesting, you have this separation between the physical world, and we see this kind, of, this kind of like impenetrable boundary between the physical world that we can measure scientifically and the spiritual world. And so we've been taught in our culture, we can't penetrate that. We can't really get up to truth in the spiritual world. That's what's beautiful here about this picture of Jesus Christ coming into the flesh. He entered into this physical world. He, so we would agree. We, we can't go up there. God came down here. And so that's one of the unique and beautiful things about Christianity. And then it leads to this final paradoxical fruit where it talks about love in verse 7. In verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Right. So this is a final boundary. If you don't love, you don't know God. Right. Now, I don't, I don't take joy in, in uh, taking away your assurance of a relationship with God, but, but biblically it says if, if you don't love people... You don't know the real God. And so I don't say that to to push you and make you feel more separated from God. I I say that to invite you into a real relationship with God. I say that to to press you and invite you into a real loving relationship with the God of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. So he says, if you don't love, you don't know God. Uh, Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. So it was seen among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Right? So He sent His Son so that we could have real life. And verse 10 says, And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. This is this beautiful recurring theme in Scripture it says that later on in, in, in 1 John 4, uh, we love God. Because he first loved us. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us. So are we supposed to love God? Yes, but it's after God loves us. God's love compels us. God's love drives us to love other people. That's real spiritual transformation. So he says, this is love, verse 10 again, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's our big word of the night, right? Propitiation. I want you all to, you want to try saying that, propitiation? Propitiation. Very good, awesome, all right? So some translations use propitiation. It's a Greek word, hilasmas. okay? I won't try that one, but so hilasmas is a Greek word. It's translated propitiation oftentimes uh, in some of the more, I guess you'd say more literal type translations, and then some of the other translations will use sacrifice of atonement, right? So sacrifice of atonement is the way the translators want to pull you back to the Old Testament concept. Propitiation—they're trying to uh, be more exacting with the language, but there's a—you know—there's always a problem with being so exact with the language that you use a word that is no longer used in English. So, so you've kind of got this difficulty here, right? But both concepts, whether it's sacrifice of atonement or whether it's propitiation, both have the concept of a sacrifice being made uh, to make the the gods in the ancient pluralism context happy with us, right? So the idea is that God's wrath is poured out against us because we are sinners, because we've rebelled against God. And the way you would propitiate all the other gods is you would bring some sacrifice to make the gods happy with you. So the word propitious means like uh, favorably inclined towards someone, right? So being happy with you is if I'm propitious towards you. Uh, And so the idea is that all the other religions say bring something to sacrifice to make the God happy when the God's mad at you. Christianity says that God was the sacrifice himself, that he sent his son as the propitiation for our sins. So again, it's it's a parallel with the first part of that verse. Not that we loved him, it's that he loved us. It's not that we propitiated him, it's that he propitiated us towards himself. He took his own wrath upon his son. He absorbed the wrath that we deserved. The judgment, the penalty that we deserved was poured out on Christ. And the grace and the delight that Christ deserves was given to us so that God delights in it. He's propitious towards us. He loves us. We're his His children. And so this should blow our minds. If this doesn't blow your minds, if this doesn't compel you to love God and love others, then again, you don't know God, is what he just said a couple of verses before. And again, I don't I don't say that to, to push you away. I say that to invite you in. Like, in, come and let's reason together. Let's investigate. Let's... Let's think about who God really is and how he's revealed himself through Jesus because if you really understand who he is as he's revealed himself, as he manifested himself in Jesus, it will compel you to love him and to love others. So the narrowness of this particular historical truth, the God who left the world of spirits and ideas and entered into the physical world and the history and the science of our universe, that God who took on flesh, that particular Narrow truth should compel us to be very broad in our love to genu- genuinely and generously love other people, to have open arms to accept other people to be humble to recognize man I, I may believe the truth about Jesus, and maybe you don 't, but you 're probably a lot smarter than I am. You, I probably have a lot to learn from you. It should put us in this humble situation of understanding that we have a lot to learn from people that We want to get to know people. We want to listen to people. Just because we believe the truth doesn't mean we're arrogant and prejudiced and aggressive and we're going to cause a bunch of fights, right? It should actually compel us to be loving, to be generous. And so my picture here of what this looks like is the, uh, this is a statue in Dallas of Jesus washing Peter's feet. This is one of Jesus' final acts before he died on the cross. He washed his disciples' feet. This is something that a slave would have done in their, their culture. Um, and Jesus did this to give them an example of their love. It says in John 13, "Before he did this, he knew who he was, He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. So then he took a towel and some water and he washed his disciples' feet. It's only in that kind of confidence of a narrow, particular truth about reality that can actually drive us, compel us to serve others in love. So I want to read these final verses. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. It's this idea that Jesus is the manifestation of God, and when we trust ourselves to who He is and His love for us, then God is manifested through us as we as we love each other. This is a statue in the middle of Dallas Theological Seminary. So it's this great seminary up in up in Dallas where you can learn all kinds of ideas, you can study uh, great truths, you can study philosophy and study the Bible and learn the original languages, and you can become very smart. But at the at the center of their the center of their school, they have this picture of Jesus kneeling down, washing his disciples' feet to, to remind the students that you're, you're learning a bunch of stuff, but this is the posture you should take. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so as we embark on this series of wrestling with difficult ideas of thinking about uh, philosophy and thinking about the, the great thinkers of the world, we have to remember that the narrowness of Christian truth should actually drive us to be on our knees, to, to serve other people, to love other people, to wash other people's feet. And that's ultimately what it means to be a follower of Christ. Christ's final sacrifice at that final meal, he taught his disciples that he was the the Passover sacrifice. We remember that in communion. Um, So we're going to remember that together tonight. Again, that's to empower us, to remind us. It's to uh, drive us back to this paradoxical fruit of Christian narrowness. That the narrowness of the truth of Jesus' sacrifice for us Compels us to love other people, to be generous. A narrow truth and a very broad love for others. So my prayer is that you'd be encouraged tonight, you'd be empowered to share that love with other people. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for this story that's that's too good to not be true, and we pray that we would be transformed by it, that we would be compelled to love you, to love others. Help us to live in joy, to live in this reality. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.